0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على سيدنا وعظيمنا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا القاسم محمد وعلى أهل بيته طيبين الطاهرين وأصحابه الغر الميامين الحمد لله الذي جعلنا من المتمسكين بولاية سيدي ومولاي علي بن أبي طالب الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا ان الله ما بعد يقول الله في كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم واعتصم بحبل الله جميعا ولا تفرقوا ذا فضل اول صلوات ونور رسول الله محمد صلى الله عليه واله وسلم اللهم صل على طالب and the third with your loudest voices, in honour of the Imam of our time, Imam Sahib Al-Asr wal Zaman. Allahumma salli Respected scholars, brothers and sisters, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The discussion concerning Sunni-Shi'a unity is without a doubt the most important discussion in the Muslim world today. Indeed, a discussion that requires a thorough examination, for it's a discussion that affects the lives of over a billion people in this world, both young and old, and indeed male and female, from different backgrounds and different demographic circuits. You find that this discussion, without a doubt, requires a thorough analysis For indeed, the state of the Muslims at the moment is a state which is very saddening. Wherever you look in the Muslim world today, you hear of disunity between the different schools of the religion of Islam. You hear that Sunni don't want to talk to Shia. Shia are attacking Sunni. And indeed, in different countries, there seems to be a hatred between the two schools. You look in Pakistan, for example, and you find that it's normal To hear that over the past 15, 20, 25 years in Karachi, it was normal to hear of killings that have occurred. That you hear, for example, in Parachinar and Peshawar and different areas where people who all claim to have said the shahadah, all claim to have said, La ilaha illallah, they claim to have witnessed the prophethood of the holy prophet, yet still find it as normal to kill another Muslim and kill and actually expect a Great reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Likewise, you find that Pakistan is not the only place. One only has to look at Bahrain, for example, only recently. in seeing the killings between Sunni and Shia. One can look in Syria and see the killings between Sunni and Shia. And indeed, one finds that these killings occur recently, even in countries you never expected. Kuwait used to have a fantastic relationship between Sunni and Shia. Established by the likes of Sheikh Ahmed Al Wa'ili, may Allah bless his soul, who ensured that for 30, 40 years on the pulpits in Kuwait, there wasn't hatred between Sunni and Shia. You find that some members of the Kuwaiti royal family used to actually come to the Husseiniyah or to the Imam Bargah to listen to a majlis on the 10th of Muharram. Yes, and I even remember that Sheikh Zayed, if you go to the Emirates, Sheikh Zayed used to be of those who used to fund the food for the 10th of Muharram. Yes? There used to be a wonderful relationship that used to be there in the Middle East. And only recently we saw the Imam al-Sadiq mosque in Kuwait where the bomb blasts take place in Shahar Ramadan of all months. As in when a person sees a Muslim willing to take another Muslim's life in the holy month of Ramadan, it really is a sad state of affairs. Because on the one hand, we're telling the world Islam is the religion of peace, which I believe is a sentence that doesn't ever make any sense. You find that that's just a Muslim's get-out clause of trying to describe their religion as a beautiful religion. You don't need to say it's a religion of peace. Being peaceful when there are oppressive people doesn't solve any issue in life, yes? Sometimes a person needs to speak out against injustice, yes? To say a whole religion is just peace, just turn the other cheek all the time. That means whenever there's dhulm, you're quiet. No, Islam is not a religion of peace, but Islam certainly wants to advocate peaceful coexistence. Yes, you could say that. That Islam sought to advocate peaceful coexistence first and foremost between all of humanity. O mankind, we created you from male and female, different races and different tribes in order that you get to know one another. The best amongst you in the eyes of God is the one who's conscious of God. That's on the one level. The whole of mankind should peacefully coexist. Then... The people of the book, O oh people of the book, come to a joint word between us and you. That we'll only worship God, we won't put partners besides God, we won't take lawgivers besides God. So that meant that I can peacefully coexist now, not just with the whole of mankind, but with Christians and Jews. And then there comes another ayah, Wa The Muslims, all of you hold on to the rope of Allah and do not disunite. It's a clear verse in the Quran, Surah 3, verse 103. Therefore, when you look at these incidents that occur, someone asks, did Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Prophet envisage one day that Sunni will kill Shia and Shia will kill Sunni? Especially in the fact that some of our best friends are from other schools in Islam. There are many of us, if you were to ask us which houses we actually were brought up in, you'll find that we were brought up in houses where we ate food at the house of our brothers and sisters from Ahlul sunnah correct? We grew up with them. We had the best times with them. They invited us to their marriages. Fantastic hospitable people. There has to be a differentiator, no doubt, made. There has to be a differentiator that is no doubt made. Between whom? Between one who knows what they follow and someone who's just born in the school, yes? Those who often want unity, many in cases are not the ones who know their traditions or are that religious. Yes, you'll see them. They'll say that we want unity, but in many cases they've never read their history, hardly ever come to the mosque. And they'll come out and they'll say that unity is very important. Yes, I appreciate that you want unity, but I don't know if your literature wants unity. Yes, you could tell me that you want unity, but I don't know if your literature wants unity. And one of the biggest problems is, no doubt, when this literature is spread if you want to look, for example, at certain countries, the literature within those countries is never going to bring unity. Yes, those of us who want unity, the literature in the libraries, in the bookshops of those countries, either that literature has got a particular committee that oversees the literature that's being given out to the lay people. Imagine, I'm 18 years old, I go to a bookshop in Riyadh, or in Jeddah, or in Mecca, or in Medina, or in Tehran or in Najaf, I can't just give out any book to anyone. There are certain books which only the ulama can read. If these books fall in the wrong hands, I'll give you a couple of examples. Asarim al-Maslul, of whom Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah has a book known as As Asarim al-Maslul. This book is available in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, in Qatar, in Tunisia, in Palestine. Wherever you go, it's available. Asarim al-Maslul, looking at those who abuse the Rasul, those who abuse the Prophet, insult, curse the Prophet, the Sahaba, on onwards. That book within it, it is clear. The Rawafid, you know, the derogatory terms for the Shia is the Rafaḍi. The Rawafid are to be killed. Straight, the Rafaḍi is to be killed. And he shows proofs of the Rafaḍi to be killed. Now, 18-year-old in Kuwait goes to a bookshop, takes the Sadam al-Maslul of Ibn Taymiyyah, if they take that book and they read the Rafadis to be killed and someone comes to him and says, listen, those guys who pray at that Imam Barga, they're Rafadis. He said, no, they're called Shia. I said, no, they're actually Rafadis. Rafadis means those who reject the caliphate of Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, originally the Zaydis, and then you find it within Shia literature, this term quoted from Imam Sadiq and others. You find that that book, Ibn Taymiyyah's book, if it's given to anyone, that person, what's he going to do that day? That person is going to think to himself, Allah will reward me if I kill the Shia. Go into a mosque and blast the mosque, bomb the mosque, detonate themselves. Likewise, even in our own countries, Bihar al-Anwar of Alam al majlisi is not to be given to anyone in the streets. Yes? Bihar al-Anwar, you find... That Iran decided there are certain volumes of Bihar al-Anwar that will not be published and sold. Someone says, why? Bihar al-Anwar is Alam al-Majlisi's great work. Or for example, a work compiled of whom was overseen by Allam al-Majlisi. Someone turns around and says, what's wrong? No, Iran said, hold on. Bihar al-Anwar, there are certain chapters of it. The layman can take and read. There are certain volumes of Bihar al-Anwar. You don't just give to anyone. There are certain volumes the ulama can read, not the lay. Someone says, well, Ahlul Bayt left everything for the lay people. No. Ahlul Bayt left the inheritance of their knowledge that the ulama protected and disseminated. Of course, that brings up another issue. The difference between ilm and hikmah. You may be an alim, someone with knowledge, but no wisdom. That's another problem. There are many who may sit on the mimbar, lots of knowledge. No wisdom. There's a difference between ilm and hikmah. Yes. I could sit here. Uh, th- not everything that I know I say. There are certain incidents in Islamic history. Not everything that I know I say. Why? Someone might turn around to and say, you're not a passionate follower of Ahlul Bayt. No, no, no. When you're looking at me, whether it's here, whether it's online, whether it's on TV, you're looking at one person. I look at a thousand. I look at Two thousand. I recognize that on YouTube, my lecture is going to be seen everywhere in the world. I say something wrong. Someone in Karachi dies because of me, not you. True. What are, what's going to happen to you? Nothing's going to happen. It's all going to fall back on me because my majlis led to that hatred. Many people may turn around and say, this person, where's his real Shi'ism? We want a Maulana to come out and say... Every- no, not at all. Ahl al-Bayt did not want us to say everything that we know. There's a time... And a place for every discussion. And therefore you found that this question has polarized the Shia. Should there be unity or shouldn't there be unity? And look at the two extremes that emerge. Please focus on this point. One extreme says from the Sunni and the Shia, no unity whatsoever. Yes, that's one extreme. From the Ahl-Sunnah, the extreme of them, let's say the Salafi Wahhabi school, says we're not uniting with the Shia. Why should we unite with them? They don't like who we revere. They don't have a reverence for the Sahaba of Rasulullah. Yes. And therefore, there's no unity. Someone says, but they do want unity. Say, why? Say, because they allow us to come to Hajj. They give us visas. They make it clear. Shia can come to Hajj because their lay are ignorant. Their ulama are heretics. Yes. Yes. Up until recently, you found it was normal for your Ibn Bazis, your Uthaymins, your Jibreens, your Al-Sheikhs of this world to say that, yes, we allow the Shia to come to Hajj because the lay of the Shia, those who come to Hajj, most of them are jahil. Let them come do what they do. They are ulama, they are people we will never do unity with. Yes. So the extreme of that say no unity whatsoever. Even the extreme of the Shia You have the extreme of the Shia who say, why should we do any unity? This is not the period of doing unity. We should come out open with our beliefs. We have no interest in uniting with them. They love who they love and we don't want to sit on the table with the people who love such personalities. And they'll have television channels because today the world is more dangerous than ever before. One television channel with the wrong speaker given the microphone can light up and burn a whole country. Yes? Television channel, one extreme said that we've got television channels, Sunni Shia. They say we have no interest in unity. Forget unity. Unity does not exist with each other. The other extreme, all they talk about is unity. I say, hold on a minute, where's your identity? Yes, are Shia. No, everything is unity. So, what do you mean everything is unity? I say we won't talk about any of our history. I say, why? Say, because unity. Say, no, 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 but it's our history. Yes, but for the sake of unity. We won't demonstrate for Bahrain or Pakistan. Yes, why? For the sake of unity. Say, what do you mean unity? Say, because our Palestinian brethren, they are being oppressed as we could see every day. And that means we'll go and demonstrate. Well, you say, but hold on. The Pakistani Shia are being oppressed. There's a hundred of you in the demonstration. And there's 15,000 of you in the other demonstration. Yes. They say, no, everything is unity. No more la'na, say with no need for la'na anymore. Yes, so they'll recite Ziyarat ashura and they'll stop at the la'na part, no more. And then with adhan, I'm telling you, I know, not, I know mosques, I've traveled around the world, I'll tell you. Adhan, when the adhan comes, then after that, yes, say why? Say unity, okay, no problem. When it comes to the, for example, the martyrdom of Fatima Zahra let's mm, stop, let's just talk about her life and what lessons you can learn. You say, hold on a minute, but uh, part of her lesson was the oppression that she faced. No, no, don't talk about this for the sake of unity. So what you have now is two extremes. One extreme, all they're talking about is unity. The other extreme wants no unity whatsoever. The question is, what is the solution to this? How do we define unity in the 21st century? Because unless someone answers and addresses this issue, where, and our children, all they're going to do is be killing each other. Yes, nothing else. All you're going to see is children grow up, have hatred for one another, no love, no respect whatsoever. Tonight, I'd like to examine this ayah. Hold on to the rope of Allah, all of you, and do not disunite. I'd like to examine it in order that we're able to define the meaning of the word unity in Islam. And what does unity mean between Sunni and Shia today? And I'd like to examine this in the following stages. Number one, why was this particular ayah revealed? And what happened between the Muslims in Medina that angered the Holy Prophet when he saw them fighting each other? Number two, is it alright for us to stop? Practicing our law for the sake of unity. Number three, should we stop talking about history for the sake of unity? Number four, and of the utmost importance, what is the definition of unity between Sunni and Shia? And what are the steps that have been taken by the ulama of the past and the ulama of the present to ensure that the correct meaning of unity was established? And number five, which hadith in Sunni and Shia literature should be the hadith that is used to bring Sunni and Shia together? And how can we apply that hadith in our lives today? Let me examine this in order that we understand the meaning of Shia, Sunni, unity. Surah 3 verse 103 says, hold on to the rope of Allah and do not disunite. Many turn around and say this is the clearest meaning of unity. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never wanted the Muslims to disunite. Why was this particular verse revealed? The Holy Prophet, when he was in Mecca, was trying his hardest to bring people towards the religion of Islam. In Mecca, he was lucky if a hundred odd people came towards the religion. Utba bin Rabi'ah, Walid bin Mughira, Abu Sufyan, they were working diligently to make sure that no one became a Muslim. The Holy Prophet would go, for example, to Ta'if, He'd try and invite people to Islam. If the people weren't coming in Mecca, let me go somewhere else and invite them to Islam. They weren't listening. Mecca wasn't listening. He would even go to the markets and the fairs. He'd sit there. He'd openly preach Islam. No one was listening. One year, a particular group of people from Medina sat with him in Hajj and listened to what he used to say. You know, Hajj used to happen in the days of Jahiliyyah, yes? Because remember, these Arabs used to still believe that they believe in one God, but the idols are the representation of God. And that's why shirk is not just believing in more than one God. Shirk, polytheism, is also making one God a hundred images, yes? Because sometimes someone comes to me and says, there are certain religions, you say they're Mushrik, they're not Mushrik, they believe in one God, what do you mean? Say, well, they believe in one God, but look how many images they made of that God. That's still shirk. You found that what happened was, there was a group of people in Medina. These people would come for Hajj. Hajj in those days was a 40-day season. When it was a 40-day season, what type of Hajj would they do? They'd go around the Kaaba naked, for example. There was no ihram on. People would go tawaf naked. You found, for example, that they would sacrifice the animal and throw the blood on the Kaaba. They'd gossip, they'd backbite around the Kaaba. Until what happened was, when these people came from Medina, who were they? They were Yemenis who had come from Medina, from the Kahtani tribes. These Yemenis had left Yemen a long time back, hundred years or so back, because Yemen economically was very weak. They left Yemen and they came where? They came towards Medina. When they came to Medina, their hope was that Medina was flourishing So they'll become powerful in Medina. But Medina was controlled by the Jewish community. Yes. Banu Qureyza, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir. The Jews had a stranglehold on Medinian society. These tribes of Yemen were called the Aus and the Khazraj. They tried their hardest to be powerful in, in Yemen. They couldn't. They tried their hardest to do well in Medina. They couldn't. So they used to go out looking for help. Where would they go? They went to Ta'if. The people of Ta'if rejected them. They went to Mecca. The people of Mecca rejected them. Subhanallah, how Allah brings you two together when everyone else has rejected you. Yes? Rasulallah, Ta'if rejected him. Rasulallah, Mecca rejected him. Zawsan Khazraj, Ta'if rejected them. Zawsan the Khazraj, Mecca rejected them. And the Aos and the Khazraj used to hate each other. You see, unless you're united, you're not going to be more powerful than the Jewish community in Medina. Yes? You want to be more powerful than the Jewish community in Medina, you need to be united. The Aos and the Khazraj despised one another. 120 years they fought each other. When they met Rasulullah, that fight ended. Yes? They saw the character of Rasulullah. They were in Hajj, he met them. There was about six of them. He said to them, where have you come from? They said, Medina. He said, and how is Medina? They said to him, Medina's good. We are from the, the, at the beginning, he met the Khazraji tribe. We are the Khazrajis, originally from Yemen. He said, people of Yemen are good people. Yes, Imam Al-Hussein, one of the options he had if he didn't go to Karbala was the people of Yemen would help him. Yes? He said, the people of Yemen are good people. I want to bring you to Islam. Are you interested? They said, what do you mean? What's Islam? He said, Islam, we believe in one God. He said, "But already people believe in one God. He said, no, no, but we reject idol worship. Yes? Allah cannot be defined. Because if you put Allah in an idol, that means you've defined. And that which is definable is limited. And that which is limited should never be worshipped. When they heard this, they said, this makes sense to us. So six of them came. They said, we want to do our shahada with you. They went back where? They went back to Medina. The Khazrajis bought more of their people. They came back the following year, they pledged at Mina. That pledge was called the first pledge of Aqaba. The following year, there was another pledge. They called it the second pledge of Aqaba. 75 had come, men and women, pledged to Rasulullah. The woman, of course, couldn't pledge with their hand on hand. Yes. So what the woman would do, for example, is either go to someone and tell her that I want to pledge to Rasulullah. Or they put their hands in water. Rasulullah puts his hand in water. And that would be seen as a pledge. The water would be a connector. So when these people came, they accepted Islam. Rasulullah sent Mus'ab bin Umar with them. Mus'ab bin Umar, what was his role? I'm going to go to Medina. I'm going to unite these new Muslims. The Aus and the Khazraj, 120 years used to fight each other. 120 years. And now they become Muslims. What's going to happen? Is their hearts going to change or no? Are they still going to have hatred between each other? Mus'ab bin Umar done a phenomenal job. And you know, Mus'ab bin Umar was one of the great companions of the Holy Prophet. Peace be upon him, his family. Mus'ab bin Umar was the richest convert to Islam. His mom, when he wanted chocolate, she would send someone on horseback to Yemen to bring him chocolate. That's quite a luxury, I think you'd agree, yes? Imagine now your child says, Daddy, I want uh, chocolate. You say, okay, we'll send someone on a plane to go to Geneva and bring us back some chocolates. Yes, you'd have to be quite wealthy For something like that to happen, yes? You found that Musa ibn Umar went there. He brought them to where? He brought them towards the religion of Islam. When he brought them to the religion of Islam, you know what was so beautiful when he brought them? He brought them towards the religion. He removed the hatred that existed. And Allah said that their hearts were softened. And he told the Prophet, money could not buy when I soften the hearts of the Muslims to love each other. Yes. Because for Muslims to unite, the hearts have to be humble. Not the words. Yes. The hearts have to say that, you know what? Enough is enough. We should be cooperating. We are brethren of one another. You found that in Medina, Rasulullah united these two. One day, the Jews were unhappy. Listen, how are these Muslims getting so strong? Yes. Firstly, Muhammad is the head of the state. Secondly, not only is he the head of the state, but also his Aus and Khazraj used to fight each other while we had become so powerful. The Aus and the Khazraj now, they are so strong because they're united. They spread a rumor and they started a fight between the two of them, yes? What was the fight? One day, one of the Aus was told that the Khazraj are saying they have better Sahaba than the Aus. He's like, what? said, yes, didn't you hear the rumor? I said, which rumor? And subhanallah, why do Muslims hate each other? Because not verifying information between each other. Yes? Said that, what do you mean? said, yes, the Khazraj are saying that they gave the best sahaba to Islam. host member said, you must be joking. Do you know who comes from us? We have so-and-so and and we have so-and-so. Again, someone turned around and said, well, you know what, that's what they're saying. I'm going to leave it to you two to decide and you know when the Arab gets angry the Arab gets angry, yes you found that one of them got there when he got there he said hey are you the one who's been saying that the Khazraj gave the best person to Islam, he said yes he said who did you give to Islam he said from us is so and so he said well from us is him he said well from us is him he said well from us is him suddenly the biggest punch up began between these Muslims, yes all of a sudden they started fighting each other, punching each other the news reached Rasulullah. When Rasulullah heard, he said, do you remember how you two were enemies? And now you've become Muslims. Allah softened your hearts after all that animosity. And now you have this bickering and fighting over each other. This is Islam. The Quran revealed the verse, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Hold on, you Muslims, to the rope of Allah and do not disunite. Why? Because when you are one stick, it's breakable. When you're a bundle of sticks, you're unbreakable. Yes? When you're one stick, I'm a Osi, I'm a Khazraji, I'm a Muhajiri, I'm an Ansari, then you're breakable. What did Rasulullah notice? The weakness in Islam. From the beginning until now is when there's disunity. Yes. When there is disunity, then we are conquered because we've been divided. This verse was revealed because of the first time the Muslims were disunited. The first time the Muslims were disunited, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the message to the Prophet. Hold on, all of you, to the rope of Allah and do not disunite. Have you forgotten the blessing we sent upon you when we softened your hearts, when you used to hate each other? 120 years you two hated each other Islam has now come as a mercy to the both of you the Quran came down harsh that when two Muslims were disunited in Medina Allah and the heavens never stayed quiet the heavens straight away send down this ayah hold on to the rope of Allah and do not disunite taking this on board you found that the Aus and the Khazraj united the Ansar and Rasulallah brought all of them together And he formed a pact between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. One of the first acts that he did when he entered Medina, he bought the Ansar, he bought the Muhajirun, he paired them together. Because he never wanted to see disunity in his Ummah. Yes? He wanted that the Ummah remains united. If one part of the Ummah is hurt, the rest of the Ummah should be hurt. Do you know what he says? He says very clearly, The Ummah is like one body. If one part of it is hurt, the rest of the body should be hurt. When Rasulullah was saying that in Medina, you know why he was saying that? He never wanted to see his sahaba disunited. He wanted to always remind them that never be in disunity. Disunity will bring weakness. Taking this on board, someone therefore asks, if Rasulullah wanted us to be united, what is the meaning of united? Please focus on this area. The first opinion about the meaning of unity in Islam is that we should forfeit all of our legal differences for the sake of unity. What do I mean? First opinion was, who cares if you pray like this or you pray like this? Who cares? At the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all he cares about is your niyyah. Your niyyah is salah. So what? If my Sunni brother prays like this or I pray like this, at the end of the day, we are praying to Allah. We're praying to the same Lord. So who cares? Also, say, why are we against Tarawih? the Shia? Tarawih is spiritual. In the holy month of Ramadan, the Quran is being recited. Why are we against Tarawih? We should go and pray Tarawih. We should go and join our brothers in Tarawih, Because these differences in law are the problem for us. This is one opinion, yes? That we are praying hands down. Why can't we pray with our hands folded? Let's come to Masjid Ali. Let's pray with our hands folded. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He cares about what's in the heart. And not only that, Ayatullah Khomeini says, in his wonderful words, that we are bickering over whether you pray like this, or you pray like this, while there are others who are trying to cut our hands. Yes. So one opinion was what? And what is this, you know, this temporary marriage, and these things. And the wudu, why not wash your feet? Yes, what so what? Wash your feet, because at the end of you want unity. And unity means that we forfeit the laws. We forget the laws. Because Allah cares more about our heart. That's not the right meaning of unity. Let me reject this meaning quite quickly for you. Firstly, Where do I get my laws from? Me, as a follower of Ahl al-Bayt, who gives me my laws? Yes? As in, when I get my laws as a follower of Ahl al-Bayt, firstly, I recognize and appreciate that you may have different legal schools, no doubt. You have different legal schools. You have the Hanafi school, and you have the Maliki school, and you have the Shafi'i school, and you have the Hanbali school. I appreciate all of these Were ulama. I do not doubt this. To me, as a follower of Ahl al-Bayt, Firstly, I do view them all as scholars who have studied, no doubt whatsoever. As in, I don't want someone to sit here in 2015, thinks that he's memorized more hadith than Abu Hanifa. No, you haven't. Relax. okay? Even if you don't follow Abu Hanifa or Malik, you haven't memorized as much Quran as them, nor as much hadith. But Abu Hanifa and Malik, to me, their knowledge is what is known as what? Ilm husuli. It's a knowledge that they acquire from teachers. Whereas Ja'far al-Sadiq's knowledge is ilm hudhuri, immediate from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes? Now, why do I believe this? Because I believe that Imam al-Sadiq inherits from Imam al-Baqir, from Imam Zain al-Abidin, from Imam al-Hussein, from Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, from the Prophet, from Jibra'il, from the heavens. Yes? So now when I have a way of praying, I pray like this, not because I want to disunite with you, my brother. Yes, I pray like this because I am taking from the teacher, you're taking from the students. Abu Hanifa is a student of Imam Sadiq. Malik is a student of Imam Sadiq. Both of them admit that they're students. Abu Hanifa says, Lawla sanatan. If it wasn't for my two years with Jafar al-Sadiq, I would be perished. Therefore, someone comes and tells me, but come on, why don't we just fold our hands? I'll explain to you why not. Firstly, Malik, you know the four schools of fiqh, the Maliki school pray with their hands by their side. It's not just me. I'm a Ashari Shia. I pray with my hands by my side. When I've gone to mosques in America, Alhamdulillah, we have more respect and tolerance here than back home. Yes? And that's something we shouldn't forget because this is a ni'mah that we're in America. That more of us can get to know each other. When I've gone to other places, I remember going to one place, someone came up to me. He said to me, you Because I had my hands by my side. I said to him, firstly, brother, let me ask you a question. Yes, who did he pick on that day? Let me ask you a question. I said to him, I want to ask you something. Which of the imams of Ahlus sunnah who I have reverence for their fiqh works, which of them? do you find saying it is wajib to fold your hands? So wajib. He said, no. He said, because Abu Hanifa says in one direction and Shafi says another and Malik says another. I said, who said another? He said, Malik. He said, how does, how does Malik say you pray salah? He said, hands by the side. I said, so now what's your issue with me today? He said, because if you're attacking me because I'm praying by your hands by my side, Malik bin Anas is your imam of fiqh. He allows the praying of the hands by the side. So where's your issue on this area? He said, so, he said, yes. I said, if I'm praying by this side, you want to call me Shia, I call me Shia. You want to call me Maliki? Call me Maliki. But appreciate that when I'm following this way, Malik used to take his fiqh from the people of Medina because he believed the people of Medina were the closest to Rasulullah. So they would know how Rasulullah prayed. So when I pray with my hands by myself, someone says, okay, well, do, look at us rubbing our feet. Why don't we wash our feet? Yes. For the sake of unity. Quran says, and the ayah is clear. There is no way the ayah could anyway indicate that you wash your feet. No way. Fatherless al-Samarai, arguably a genius in Arabic grammar. I've never seen a mind like Samarai when it comes to Arabic grammar. He's one of the scholars of Ahl sunnah in Arabic grammar. They asked him the ayah on wudhu, does it prove washing or wiping? He said wiping according to Arabic grammar, washing according to the sunnah. Wiping according to Arabic grammar. Washing according to the sunnah. I said to him, Dr. Fadl, you know sunnah cannot override Quran. Yes? And so here what do you find? You find the Quran says, Ya أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا قُمْتُمْ Surah 5 verse 6. Oh you who believe, when you rise for salah, wash your face, wash your hands, wipe your head, wipe your feet. I asked one of our brothers, I said to him, it says wipe. He said, yes, and please respect these opinions that I'm giving. This is not a majlis for humor. I'm not here to humor anyone. I'm speaking about the feelings of 700 million people in the world. I said to the brother, I said to him, I says wipe." He said, but washing includes wiping. I said, yes, but brother, that could mean also if Allah says 100 lashes for zina, I can turn around and say, okay, I'm going to lash 200 because I've done my 100 and another 100 to punish. You can't. You can't come with these conclusions, yes? So someone says to me, for the sake of unity, we should put... Our hands are crossed. No, no. I follow Imam Sadiq in law. I appreciate you follow Abu Hanifa. No problem. I appreciate you follow Imam Malik. No problem. Follow them. Someone says for wudu. Again, I appreciate. Someone says taraweeh. Someone says I want to go tarawih for the sake of unity. I said what do you mean sake of unity? He says we go there to the mosque. People will appreciate us that we're praying taraweeh. We shia are going to our brethren and we're praying taraweeh. No, not at all. Taraweeh in the school of Ahlul Bayt is haram. Again, who do I take its haram from? Imam al-Sadiq. Imam al-Sadiq says that As salah, which is not wajib, cannot be prayed in jama'ah. That's it. Except Salat al-Istisqa, which is for rain. Uh, that's a severe case. Otherwise, I say that my dear brother Omar himself said, Umar ibn al-Khattab said, this is taraweeh is a good Bid'a, it's a good innovation. You want to pray tarawih, it's completely up to you. I don't have a problem. But I'm not going to forfeit my legal system for the sake of unity. Yes. No doubt, I'm going to put it to the side. Ahlul Bayt do allow, for example, Ahlul Bayt say that if we're going to a mosque, let's say, and we feel there's a danger while we're at that mosque. There are times you don't pray with the torba, There are times that even even extreme cases, extreme where your life is under threat, there is applicability. But on the general, someone says, okay, this mut'ah, this temporary marriage that you have, this is something we shouldn't do for the sake of unity. I say, no, the Rasulullah allowed the mut'ah. His companions would ask him, can we engage in a temporary marriage or do we castrate ourselves? This isn't Sahih al-Bukhari, by the way. He said, "No, get married even for a few days. There is no problem. It's a temporary marriage." Okay, so when I'm now having a legal school, that legal school isn't for me to disunite. That legal school is for me to say, "Hadarai Ja'far al-Sadiq, Hadarai Abu Hanifa, Hadarai Malik." All of them have their opinions. I respect my brothers of other schools' opinions, but. I must admit, for me, Imam al Baqir and Imam al Sadiq, nobody comes near them when it comes to jurisprudence. That's on the one hand. The second opinion about unity was what? The second opinion about unity was let's not talk about our history because history causes us trouble. Why not? You just find a group of people saying, don't talk about Fatima Zahra, how she died. Yes? Just say Fatima, these are the lessons to learn from the daughter of Rasulullah's life. That she was humble, she was tolerant, she was respectful, that's all. Don't talk about Ghadir, don't talk about Saqifah, don't talk about Jamal, don't talk about Safin, don't talk about Karbala. Firstly, what's there left to talk about? You might as well take my whole history away. Secondly, the Quran gives us a manifesto in life. That learn from history. Yes. How many times in the Quran? Every second ayah. And remember Faraon. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seems to like to talk about history. Yes. And remember Faraon. And remember Yusuf. And remember Nimrud. And remember Adam. And remember Nuh. And remember Musa. Remember Musa. Remember Musa is mentioned more than Rasulullah in the Quran. The Quran has come to the Prophet. Most of the Quran is about Musa. Now, when someone comes and tells me, don't talk about history, okay, which parts of my history don't you want me to talk about? You see what half the problem is? The worldview of my brothers and sisters in Ahlus Sunnah is you don't talk about history. That means the moment I do talk about history, already they call me a disuniter. Not because I'm saying anything wrong, but because already the worldview doesn't allow history. Jamal, I... Look at the history of the Battle of Jamal. I see Aisha, the wife of Rasulullah, fighting Ali ibn Abi Talib. Either I turn around and say, no, no, don't talk about it. But one day my kids are going to ask me, they're going to say to me, how is it 25 years after Rasulullah died, his wife is fighting the fourth Khalifa? And also, if he's the fourth Khalifa, can someone fight the fourth Khalifa? If he's rightly guided, can rightly guided fight rightly guided? But I do it in a manner of respect. Yes. Likewise the battle of Safin. I want to discuss it. Someone says don't, don't, don't. This is fitna. I said why? I say did not Rasulullah say Ali al haq wa'al haq, wa'al haq Did not Rasulullah say Ammar bin Yasir al faat al Ammar will be killed by infidels. Can't I discuss? Someone says don't discuss the martyrdom of Zahra. Why? Said because you're going to alienate our brothers and sisters from Ahlul sunnah My dear brothers and sisters... They love Fatima zahra as much as I love Fatima zahra And they have as much right to know about Fatima as I do. My brothers from Ahlus sunnah and sisters, in their lectures they say Fatima is a part of me. Whoever angers her angers me, Rasulullah said. Likewise, you look in Sahih al-Bukhari, the hadith is clear as day, Fatima died angry with Abu Bakr and did not want him to be at her funeral. And she wanted to be buried secretly in the night. Now, what have I? I just want everyone to pause over here for a second. There's a difference in the way I've said this and the way someone else may say it. Others may sit on the mimbar, wait for the crowd to go hilarious and jumpy. I, you haven't come to an entertainment theater. You've come to an academic institution known as Mimbar Al Muhammad. A speaker who sits on the mimbar waits for his crowd to jump up and down. Over the death of Zahra by proving that she died. That person, someone should sit him and say, Molana, Lashkar, Jangvi, Sipa, Sahaba. You may hate them, dislike them. Ultimately, they revere the man who was involved in the incident of the door. If you're going to mock him for 45 minutes, then someone's going to die in Karachi streets. But if you now explain, look, Bukhari says Fatima died angry with Abu Bakr. The daughter of Rasulullah is buried secretly in the night. No one knows where she is buried until today. Does not that make people think that is said in a manner of respect? My brother from Ahlul Sunnah might turn around and say, well, you know what? I agree that she died angry with Abu Bakr, but I reject that there should be any problems between Muslims over this issue. No problem. But don't tell me I can't discuss it. Why? Because the more I, the less I discuss it, the less my children will ever know what happened to Zahra. What do I mean? I met someone from Dubai, from the Shia of Dubai. Yes? The local Shia of Dubai, I personally have never seen a stand from them for Ahlul Bayt in my life. Yes, they've built a couple of mosques. There's certain things you hold back from saying. Shi'a can't have majalis in Dubai now for two reasons. Either the Mawlana's who cause, stupidly cause trouble in Dubai. <laughs> You've come to lecture in Dubai and you want to attack people who the Dubai royal family revere. What's wrong with you Maulana? What's wrong? What's wrong? You have ilm and no wisdom. What's wrong with you? Don't you think how the Shi'a will live after you leave? But the second reason is because the Shi'a of Dubai taqiyya, taqiyya, taqiyya the whole time Their children don't even know what they believe. I met one of them in Houston. He said to me, you know, Sayyid Ammar, I grew up, I didn't know what I believed. All we knew, yes, Muharram, Shahar Ramadan. Other than that, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk until eventually. Do you know how many people in India and Pakistan are followers of Ahlul sunnah originally were Shia families? Why? Not just because of taqiyya, because extreme taqiyya. Where they never wanted their children to talk. When I come here and I sit on Minbar, I talk about how Fatwa Zahra died. What's the issue? And Saqifa. why can't I talk about Saqifa? Saqifah, Rasulullah was being buried. Abu Bakr and Omar went. And they went to do what? They went to elect a leader. Election, when most of the Sahaba are not there. Then Omar was appointed by Abu Bakr. Then Uthman was appointed by six people in a house. I can't talk about this. When a Palestinian child dies 60 years ago, we have to have a thousand lectures on the child. But when Zahra's door is burnt, everyone has to stay quiet. Why? Why can't I talk? Is that not the family of Rasulullah You love them. Our brothers of Ahlus sunnah love Rasulullah's family as much as we do. But the sad thing is that for the sake of unity, you've got people saying, don't talk about Then How will they ever know about Ali ibn Abi Talib's wilayah? How? But... When you talk about these, comes the third meaning of unity. What is it? Talk about it, but recognize that firstly you talk with them as you'd want to be spoken to. Yes? Many times us Shia complain that look at that speaker from Sipa Sahaba or Lashkar or the Wahhabis. Look at the way they talk about Ahlul Bayt. Well, sometimes you have to look at the way our speakers talk about them. Yes. First point about unity talk in a way where you love for your brother what you love for yourself yes that is my muslim brother at the end of the day if i see them stuck in a situation i won't call them sunni or shia i'll stop there and i'll defend them because the quran says the believers are brothers of one another so now the first point about unity is what that we talk about our history we talk about our laws but we talk to our uh, own topics the way we'd want to be spoken to. Number one. Number two, the second point about unity is that we are tolerant that there are other schools in Islam that see history different from the way I see it. Yes? I have to be tolerant of this. Not everyone sees Saqifa the way I see Saqifa. The way I see Saqifa, I see that Abu Bakr and Omar went and were more concerned with an election, then were concerned with what was happening with the Prophet. Someone might turn around and say, but they had to appoint a Khalifa. I say, I find it interesting that they knew it's important to appoint a Khalifa, but Rasulullah didn't. But still, I recognize that their opinion about Saqifa, or I recognize that my brothers and sisters from sunnah when they look at an issue, the lens they look through is not infallibility. I, when I look at an Imam's action, I look through asma. My brothers in Ahl-Sunnah say, wait, if Rasulullah can make mistakes, everyone else is going to make mistakes. If Rasulullah can make mistakes, then Ali will make and Abu Bakr will make and Fatima will make. Because they say Rasulullah himself, the chosen man. My view on Asma, my brothers and sisters in Ahl-Sunnah's view on Asma is different. I must be tolerant of the fact not every Muslim sees the world the way I see it thirdly I must recognize in the sake of unity my brothers from Ahl-Sunnah and sisters many of them don't even know what I know and I have to be aware of that what do I mean? in the Friday khutbah there's no mention you can't mention Aisha versus Ali the Imam will get sacked even Karbala do you remember the Syrian mufti on YouTube a few years ago who said for years they never told us about Imam Al-Hussein why? because Imam Al-Hussein was a Shia issue Imam al hussein is for all Muslims. Why did you not tell us? Believe you me. Many of our brothers and sisters in Sunnah, many are not told what happened to the family of Rasulullah. Many aren't made aware. Number four, the fourth point about unity is what? Our brothers and sisters in Sunnah have as much heritage in theology and law and history as we do. And we should never forget that. What do I mean? For every sheik al-Saduq, that we have. And for every Sheikh al-Tusi. And for every Allam al-Hilli. And for every Sheikh al-Mufid. And for every Sharif al murtada They also have scholars who they revere. Whether it's the likes of Ibn Hajar, whether it's the likes of Suyuti, whether it's Ahmed bin Hanbal, whether it's the Shafi'i, whether it's Malik, whether it's Abu Hanifa, whether it's Qastalani, whether it's for example Ibn Majah, whether it's Nasa'i, whether it's Abu Dawood, For every bit of heritage that they have, we have, you can't turn around and generalize about a whole school. Their theological thinkers are great theological thinkers. Yes, they may not reach the same conclusions I do, but I shouldn't mock them without knowing what is the mind frame of Ghazali, what's the thoughts of Al-Baqalani, what's the opinions of Ibn al-Muqaffa O Al-Mawardi. Let me understand Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, uh, Ibn Kuthair, Ibn al-Athir, al Baladhuri. I need to understand they have heritage and we have heritage. But what was important for our ulama was when they discussed with the ulama of Ahlus sunnah there was always Akhlaq even if there was no Akhlaq back. Alam al Halli Ibn Taymiyyah lived in the same time. Alam al Halli, you know Ibn Taymiyyah's book, Minhajah Sunnah, is a reply to Alam al Halli's work. They used to exchange letters with each other. Alam al halli used to talk to him by saying respected Sheikh. Respected. Al-Lam <laughs> al-Halli, they would call him, from, they would name him al-Mutahhar. Yes, al-Mutahhar, son of the pure. You know how Ibn Taymiyyah would write back to him? Ibn al-Munajjas, son of the najas, son of the impure. Did al al-Halli turn around and say, they called us najas, tomorrow, majlis, 8th 9 Muharram, I'm going to attack the whole of Ahl-Sunnah. Respected Sheikh, replying back to your point. Because Imam al-Sadiq's akhlaq is always above everybody else's. Al-Muhammad, where they differ with everybody else, in the face of difficulties, their akhlaq is always the same. That's not to say there weren't ulama of Ahlul sunnah who never had that type of akhlaq. You mentioned Sheikh Mahmoud Shaltoud, head of Al-Azhar, who helped in the formulation that there are five schools of fiqh, not four. He is the one, he's the head of Al Azhar, not Shia. He said there is uh, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali. You look at the great works of the likes of Jawad Mughniya, Sharaf al Din al Musawi, great ulama of al Bayt, who tried always taqrib between the schools of Islam. Never did they ever have disrespect. No. They said we tolerate, we recognize there's another opinion on history, we have our own theology, but that doesn't mean we'll ever disrespect. Or show arrogance to any other school. You found likewise others who came forward. Look at Ayatollah Sistani. Our Sunni, the brethren when he's talking about Iraq. He said, Sunnis are not our brothers. They are our souls. Yes. Ayatollah Sistani when he says something like this. You know why? Because he knows that this fire is about to light in Iraq. Yes. The Shia being massacred. That spike massacre that took place. 1,700 died in one day. That massacre, Ayatollah Sistani Kavizi said, they've killed us, go and kill them. No, no. They are not our brothers, they are our souls. Yes, someone might say the context of what he said, it is a different context. It does not matter. The point is that when we have the minbar, and that's where the important point comes. When Imam al Abidin had the minbar in Sham, when he had that minbar, the first thing he said in his khutbah, this lecture is what? Firstly, the intention of it is the pleasure of Allah, not the pleasure of al Abidin. Secondly, islah al-Ummah, to bring reform and peace in the Ummah. A minbar or a majlis that is not for Allah and not to bring peace in the Ummah is more destructive to Ahlul Bayt than anything else. When you see a speaker sit on the minbar and their aim is to cause destruction between the Muslims, we said unity doesn't mean I forget my history nor I forget my law. There's a method, an intellect, a respect where the Quran says invite towards the way of Allah with wisdom not ilm not ilm ilm caused so much trouble on this mimbar. a lot of alims and he sits there and what's his aim? there's sunnis in the crowd? yes they're there? okay watch Yes, watch how I'm going to hurt them today. You've come. This is not your member. This is Abba Abdullah's place. You're just a servant of Hussein. That's all you are. And you're going to die and Hussein will live forever. No one thing. Don't ever let it get to you that you sit here or now on television. You see people suddenly get pumped up. I'm on TV. You know what? Let me start attacking everybody. No, no, no. When that boy dies in a mosque in Kuwait. And you know what? One person turned around to me. and said, we Shi'a were getting killed anyway. It's no difference today. Yes? We Shi'a were getting killed anyway. Means you add the fuel to the fire? said, no, there's no difference. We were getting killed anyway. You add fuel to the fire? No. You try and build a better place. Where our Sunni brothers and sisters can come to our centers. And we can go to their centers. And that's why the fifth area is what? We must have days of unity. May Allah bless the soul of Ayatollah Montazeri, and the way he mentioned how important the week of the birth of Rasulullah is—a week of unity between the Ummah. The tenth of Muharram should be a day of unity between the followers of Ahlul Bayt, because it's Hussein who unites us, and that's why when they asked Imam Al baqir when the ayah says, "Hold on to the rope of Allah and do not disunite." They asked him, what's the rope of Allah? He said the Quran and Al-Muhammad. <laughs> because someone asks me, what is the hadith that Muslims, Sunni and Shi'a can use to unite? There's only one. In Sahih Muslim, the Holy Prophet said, "I leave. he stopped at a watering place called Khum. In Sahih Muslim. He stopped at a watering place called Khum, Ghadir. Khum. He stopped there. He said, people, I leave behind for you two weighty things. This is in Sunni books and Shia books. So it's a great point of unity. I leave behind for you two weighty things. Hold on to them. You'll never go astray. The Quran and my Ahlul Bayt. Do you know how many, it's very sad. Do you know how many imams of mosques of Ahlul Sunnah don't tell their people this? You know what they tell them? Quran and Sunnah. What have Ahlul Bayt done wrong to you for you to, to, to lie? He says, no, no, no. It's Quran and Sunnah. Bukhari doesn't say Quran and Sunnah. Muslim doesn't say Quran and Sunnah. Nasa'i doesn't say Quran and Sunnah. There's only once Malik in his Muwatta has a hadith where he says Quran and Sunnah. And we don't reject Quran and Sunnah. But Rasulullah on Ghadir, what did he say? I leave behind for you the Quran and my Ahlul Bayt. Why do you think these Maulanas in New York or Mawlana's in Washington or Mawlana's all over America or Mawlana's in Pakistan or in Iraq or wherever why do you think they say Quran and Sunnah? Because they know if they say Quran and Ahlul Bayt, all of Ahlul Sunnah will come towards the path of Ahlul Bayt. Believe me, they know deep down. And it's sad, it's sad that you put your fame ahead of putting the truth of Rasulullah. Sahih Muslim, Google it tonight. I leave behind for you the Quran and my Ahlul Bayt. The Prophet said, hold on to them. You'll never go astray. And then they asked Rasulullah, aren't your wives part of your ahl al-bayt? He said, my wives are part of my family. But it's not who this is revealed about. This is revealed about those members of my family who cannot take zakat. Yes? Can't take sadaqah. And then after that, they asked him, who are your ahl al-bayt? He said, the sons of Ali. Ali and his sons. Aqil and his sons. Ja'far and his sons, Abbas and his sons, look at that as a point of unity, Quran and Ahlul Bayt, that's the point of our unity, there is no other point, I'll tell you the story, it happened to me in Saudi Arabia, to conclude, I was in Saudi Arabia, whenever I go to for Hajj, I love going to the uh, Wahhabi bookshops, yes, I go to the Wahhabi bookshops, and I, you know, in the Wahhabi bookshops, I think the books are great, because there's a lot of great books on Quran, You know, our uh, brethren there in Saudi Arabia, very strong on Quran, nothing on Ahlul Bayt, nothing. And us, excellent on Ahlul Bayt, nothing on Quran. So we were there, I was in the bookshop, and of course I'm wearing this really creased up and I've always got someone with me. And always in the Hajj groups, when we take them, there's always someone who fears being near me in the group because they know I'm going to take them to the bookshop and they have to stand with me for two hours while I read every book and then leave. <laughs> so I go downstairs. I'm in the Wahhabi bookshop. There's a Pakistani, Afghani, and a Sudanese. This sounds like a joke, I think. <laughs> Pakistani, Afghani, and Sudanese, they're there. So... Looked at me and I'm looking at the books. And he said to me, where are you from? I said, I'm from Iraq. He said, Shia. I said, yes. So what did he do? He went. He started beating his chest. He's like. I'm like, yes. It's better than suicide bombing. At least I only harm myself. So he started laughing. I started laughing. It was good conversation. You you could tell that they were just migrants who were working in a bookshop. He said to me, brother, I want to advise you. Everyone wants to advise me, yes? said, so, brother, I want to advise you. So, what is it? He said, you have to hold on to the Quran and the Sunnah. I said, hold on to what? He said, Quran and Sunnah. I said, where is it written? I said, what do you mean? So, said, where is it written that it's Quran and Sunnah? I said, how many books you got in this bookshop? He said, 7,000. I said, if you find me today in any of the six sahihs, Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, Abu Dawud, Ibn Majah. If you find me, it says Quran and Sunnah, I'll become in front of Kaaba right now. I'll join Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. He said, then what is it? Please understand what happened. Please bear with me. He said, what is it? I said, Quran and Ahlul Bayt. He said, okay, look for it. Show me now. Bukha Muslim, Sahih Muslim, I could see it, but the problem is Sahih Muslim. The 1981 edition, the writing is small. 1997 edition, the writing is bigger. Now I've got the hadith number in my head, but these sizes of books can differ depending on the publisher. So I pick out hadith number 2230, and it said something like, you know, I think something like donkey meat is haram or something. And then I looked for another hadith, and it talked about garlic or something like that, until eventually I found the hadith. Zayd bin Arqam stopped at a watering valley called Khum. Ghadir means spring, oasis. He said, they asked him about what Rasulullah said. So he said that the Prophet stopped at a watering valley called Khum. And he said, oh people, I leave behind for you two things. First proof, Ghadir Khum. Second proof, last sermon of Rasulullah was at Ghadir Khum, not at Hajj third proof I leave behind for you the Quran and my Ahlul Bayt Allah is my witness and Mullah Hassan if he listens to this will be a witness as well he knows very well what happened this Indian person the Pakistani person there he said get me a chair it's the moment you see when someone realizes something's been hidden he said to me get me a chair he sat down he was in shock he he said this is Ahlul Bayt next to Quran doesn't say Sunnah I said, I didn't want to say anything because I could see he's in extreme shock. Saudi walked past. And he walked past. He said, What are you discussing? I think he overheard. So I said, We're discussing Hadith al Thaqalain. So what, what's your conclusion? I said, It says Quran and Ahlul Bayt in Sahih Muslim, not in Shia books. He said, No, it's Quran and Sunnah. I said, No, no, it's Quran. He said, I say it's Quran and Sunnah. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> at that moment, I saw the meaning of the ayah. In his own eyes, I showed him Ahlul Bayt. And he looked arrogantly at me and said, We say it's Sunnah. What are you going to do about it here? Sometimes. People see the haqq of Al-Muhammad in front of them. Whether they accept it or not is up to them. I showed him in Sahih Muslim. In Saudi Arabia. Not in Iran, not in Iraq. And he just looked at me and said, so what? What are you going to do about it? And he said in Arabic the exact words, and only the Arabs there will know what that means. What does it therefore conclude? Quran and Ahlul Bayt is what unites the Muslims. The more the Muslims will hold on to these two, Rasulullah has promised we'll never go astray if we hold on to the Quran and Ahlul Bayt. And who did Rasulullah and Sahih Muslim say were the Ahlul Bayt? The sons of Ali, sons of Ja'far, and Subhanallah, the grandsons of Ja'far and Ali represented their grandfathers in Karbala wonderfully. Yes. Own son of Zainab, daughter of Ali, and his brother Muhammad, son of son of Abdullah, son of Ja'far al-Tayyar. Allah, Sayyida Zainab, who was her husband, Abdullah, the son of Ja'far al-Tayyar, and Subhanallah. You look at the tents of Karbala: Al Ja'far, Al Aqil, and Al Muhammad, all represented. Yes. And you found what did this Ummah do? Forget your Sunni or your Shia. Forget that you're Sunni or your Shia. Don't you think how could we do that to the grandchildren of Rasulullah? May Allah bless Sheikh Khalid Latif. May Allah bless Sheikh Khalid Latif, Chaplain in New York, for saying these exact words that this is the family of Rasulullah, and he represents the Sunni majority crowd. And MashaAllah, he said it. He said, do not forget that this is the family of Rasulullah. You know, Sayyidina Zainab looked at Aoun and Muhammad on the night of the 10th. She said, tomorrow you're going to make me proud. Layla is giving Ali Al-Akbar. Rabab, you know who Rabab gave. Ramla is giving Qasim. Will you too? They said to her mother, Do not worry about us. From one side, we are from Ja'far al-Tayyar. And the other, we are from Ali ibn Abi Talib. And do you know who trained them when they were younger? al Fadl. He used to train them. (laughs) Yes, One, they say, was 11. The other was 9. Another hadith says another was 13 or 11. You found that on the 10th of Muharram, firstly, the Sahaba died. Then it was the turn of Bani Hashim. When it was the turn of Bani Hashim, they came to their Uncle Imam al Hussein alayhi salam. Yes. And you remember those lines, Ya shubba allah to winno. You find that they came towards Imam al Hussein alayhi salam and they said to him, "Abu Abdullah, you're our uncle, it's our turn now. <laughs> yes. He said to them, He said, No, I will not let you go. They said to him, Why? He said, I want you to look after your mother Zainab. Allah, look how much Hussein loved Zainab. Yes. I want you to look after your mother Zainab. Yes. They said to him, But our mother is the one who sent us. He said, No, go back to your mother. When they came back, Zainab was there in the tent. She looked, she said, Why are you two here? Imagine these two young boys. Only fathers and mothers who've had kids that old will know what's going through the parents. So why have you come back? They said, our uncle said no. Do you know in Karbala, every family member, Imam Al-Hussein stopped from going except Ali Al-Akbar. <laughs> 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 uh. Uh. Except Ali Al-Akbar. Because <laughs> he had nothing to say to Ali Al-Akbar. He loved Ali Al-Akbar. Yes, and I'll come to Ali Al-Akbar soon but with the other sons he said to them he said I want you to go back to your so she said to them okay stay here let me go to Abba Abdullah she said Aba. she said Abba Abdullah why didn't you allow them to go he said because I want someone to look after you when I go so she looked at him You know, there's two things she said to him that broke his heart. And what a soft heart he has. The first thing she said to him is, do you remember in Safin when Abbas came out, he was young? He said to her, yes. She said, do you remember our father? He was smiling when he saw Abbas come out young. He said to her, yes. She said, then let me please have a smile seeing my sons come out. He said to her, you're right. Then she said one more thing. She knew there's one person. <laughs> she knew there's one person. Well, there's two that break his heart the most, but one in particular. She said to him, Abdullah, what do I tell my mother Zahra? What did I give her? <laughs> Allah. <laughs> Allah. Allah. <laughs> Allah. <laughs> I want all of you to ask, what have you given Zahra? I want all of you, brothers and sisters, you, when you meet Fatima zahra on the Day of Judgment, will you be able to look at her proud? Brothers and sisters, tonight I want you to ask yourself, what will you tell Zahra? Wallah, the moment he heard Fatima al-Zahra's name, he began to cry, yes? Because all she said was, I want to meet my mother Fatima and say, I gave. I said to a Zainab, I want to say to a Zainab, you gave in Kufa. Zainab, you gave in Sham. Yes. They came out, the two of them, two bright moons in Karbala. Yes. And every time they would strike one of the opposition, they turned to their uncle Abel Fadl. Yes. And they turned to see, is he proud of what they're doing? until someone came towards them yes because Umar bin saad said don't attack them one-on-one even if they are children they are the grandchildren of ali and jafar all of a sudden someone came and attacked Aun muhammad tried to get in his way and all of a sudden, someone attacked Muhammad, and Aoun tried to get in his way. Uh, when Aoun fell on the ground, he called out, As salamu alaykum, ya Sayyidi, ya Abdillah. Imam al Hussein came to the body of Aoun. He said by him the final words that Aoun said to him break the heart. What did he say to his uncle? He said to him, Uncle, are you proud of the way that we fought? He said to him, Yes, my. Nephew, of course, I am. He said to him, Uncle, I want to tell you one thing. <laughs> I want to tell you one thing. He said, What is it? He said, We never drank from the water of Please tell our mother Zainab, How can we drink from the water while Abba Abdullah is thirsty? How can we drink from the water while our mother sits in the with no water next to her. Do you know the narrations what they mention? They mentioned that when Imam Hussein took Aun and Muhammad back, Zainab stood still. She never cried. Yes. You would think the mother would explode. No, she stood still. Why? There was a reason. In Karbala, she never cried for them. Then in Kufa, she never cried for them. In Sham, she never cried for them. Back to Karbala, she never cried for them. When she returned, back to Medina the moment she entered her house she saw two empty mattresses on the ground yes and that moment she fell on the ground she said to the mattresses oh my flowers of the earth I would have cried for you in Carabella, but I never because Aba Abdullah had no one to cry for him Allahu Akbar Ya <sighs> inna inna May Allah bless all of your tears. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to raise us with Muhammad and al-Muhammad. Ya Allah unite the Muslim Ummah. Ya Allah bring unity on the Quran and the Ahlul Bayt. Ya Allah let us have tolerance and respect of one another's history and heritage. Ya Allah unite us upon the love of Imam Al-Hussein alayhi Salam, the flesh of Rasul Allah Sallallahu Alayhi Wa Ya Allah this masa'ib I dedicate I dedicate to Sayyid Zaynab ibn Sham. Ya Allah allow us to visit Sayyid Zainab alayhi Salam. We pray to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala with the Surah Al-Fatiha but before it the loudest of your salawat.